Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden. Um, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. This is a very special edition of our Writers Live series. I know you're very eager to hear from our special guest tonight and to get a copy of her latest book, Breaking the Sound Barrier. And we just want to say a special Pratt Library welcome to Amy Goodman. Amy doesn't need a whole lot of introduction. I'll just make it <laughs> short and sweet, and she will take over, and then when she finishes, uh, Anthony and I will do the question and answer with Amy and with all of you uh, to have your questions. We want you to participate in this this evening. And Amy Goodman, let me just say very quickly, and we all know who she is, so as I said, we don't need a long, lengthy introduction for Amy Goodman, but she is built at Democracy oh. Now! <laughs> and incredible. <Wow. laughs> and, and, I mean, when you think about... What she has started at Democracy Now! How many stations now, Amy? 900. Wow. We are in a world where the media has fragmented and changed. Thank you, Amy. Where the media has fragmented and changed. And media is like it did actually in the time of the Revolution of America and beyond. is a media that is a fights for a belief in a certain kind of America. And Amy has led that charge in this country to build a progressive media that brings people to the airwaves that no one else does, brings issues up no one else will. A fearless fighter, and people in her wake are building media across the country and joining together. And a lot of it has to do with what Amy Goodman started. And so uh, I just wanted to, you're like the, the queen mother of the progressive media, Amen. and I just good to have you here in the studio. So, and this is as a board member of the Enoch Pratt Library, I'm honored that we're doing it here as well. So without further ado, Amy Goodman, yeah. it's all yours. Thank you. Oh, well, it's so wonderful to be here, um, to be here to celebrate WEAA, to celebrate public radio, um, to be here at a library, the Enoch Pratt Library. My niece, Sarah, who is right over here, said, oh, man, you're going to be at my favorite library. <laughs> and... It is especially wonderful to be at a library because it's really where I grew up. I grew up in Bayshore, New York, and my dad was on the board of our library, which was on the corner. It was like our living room. It's why I started off the first you know, 15 years of my life speaking very softly because the librarians were always saying, shh. But... Um, librarians are also the protectors of our privacy, and you don't usually think of those people behind the counter who are signing out, checking out your book as the freedom fighters of our time. But several, in the last eight years, President Bush really put them on the front line um, by uh, not only the president, but Congress with the USA Patriot Act going in particular after the librarians to say to them, we want to know who's reading what, who's using the internet when, 
And it was remarkable to see librarians organize all over this country, something some of you might not know about. I was speaking at a college library in New York recently. Librarians were standing at the back, and the students were there, you know, with the dreads and real cool and everything. I said, you know, you guys, you see these guys? They are a model of uh, rebellion and protectors of your privacy. In fact, my brother David and I wrote a book called Standing Up to the Madness, Ordinary Heroes in Extraordinary Times, and we devoted a chapter to librarians called Librarians Unbound. (laughs) And we began it by telling the story of the librarians of Connecticut, the two visitors standing at the front door of the Library Connection, a consortium of 27 Connecticut libraries that share a computer system didn't look like they had come to inquire about the latest novels. The men, one dressed in a blazer, the other in a tight T-shirt, flashed their badges and asked to speak to the boss. George Christian, the library connections, trim, mustachioed, and ever-courteous executive director, ushered them into his office. They introduced themselves as FBI agents from the Hartford office. They proceeded to hand Christian a national security letter, an NSL, demanding any and all subscriber information, billing information, and access of any person or entity that had used computers in the 27 libraries between 2 p.m. and 2.45 on February 15, 2005. The letter advised the information was sought to protect against international terrorism. Well, George Christian, the head of the library connection, was stunned. Libraries? Terrorism? Was this a plot of some clever new thriller? The agents assured him they meant business. They drew his attention to one line in particular. Like a children's librarian, one of them used his finger to underline the words and instructed Christian to read them carefully. The recipients of this letter could not disclose to any person that the FBI had sought or obtained access to information or records. It was a lifetime gag order. Break it, and Christian faced five years in jail. If you get an NSL a national security letter. And this has continued under President Obama. And well over 100,000 people have. You wouldn't know because you're not allowed to talk about it. You can't tell your boss. You can't tell another co-worker, another librarian. You can't tell your parents. You can't tell anyone on pain of, well, possibly five years in prison. And so here you have this situation. At the same time, in Congress, they were debating the USA Patriot Act. And at the time, it was, I think, Attorney General John Ashcroft who was saying, we're not going after librarians. But the librarians who were targeted weren't allowed to say that they were being targeted. Well, George Christian peered through his wire-rimmed glasses at the good cop, bad cop before him and stood his ground. He read the letter. And he looked up at them and he said, I believe this is unconstitutional. He told them he would fight the order. One of the agents smiled, giving him that pitying look that a bully gives the prey he's about to pulverize. The agent handed him a business card and instructed him to have his lawyer contact the FBI. So this brave librarian, George Christian, closes the door, slumps in his chair, and thinks, my God, what am I going to do? If I'm going to take on the whole U.S. government, he thought... I need at least three other librarians. (laughs) The thing was, he didn't even know if he could tell his lawyer. Could he go to jail for calling his lawyer? Was he allowed to call the board of the library connection to tell them what he was facing right now? 
He decided he was obligated to inform his five-member executive committee before committing the organization to a pitched legal battle. Christian's first call was to Peter Chase, and David and I went and visited Peter Chase, director of the Plainville Public Library in central Connecticut. Earnest, bookish, and imbued with a strong sense of civic-mindedness, Chase is the quintessential librarian. We came to the library right after hours, and as all people in our family do, we were carrying our full cups of coffee. He grimaced as we came to the library door. (laughs) If you wouldn't mind putting them down, he said. And, of course, we knew he was the library director, not because it said library director Peter Chase, but um, he had a pocket protector on. (laughs) Ernest, uh, he was just... He just couldn't say no when his fellow librarians asked him in early 2005 to serve on the board of the Library Connection. They said, we'll make you vice president, a colleague said to woo him. They said, it will be easy. Two weeks later, he gets this cryptic call from George Christian. George Christian says, we have a situation that requires a decision of the executive committee. It requires a decision right away. Uh, Little did Chase realize that his volunteer work was about to morph into a nightmare with national implications. So the executive committee gathers in this room of the library connection that runs the computer system of the central Connecticut libraries. Peter Chase had been told to come quickly, quietly, do not tell his family or anyone where he's going. He doesn't know. He is just a library director. He thought he was doing good work volunteering for this library board. Well, they gathered and George Christian handed them the letter. It was like being contaminated with radioactivity because once they read it, they too were bound and gagged. Their normal lawyer who was there said, this is way over my head. And as she was leaving, she said, you better call the ACLU, which is what they did, and they sued the U.S. government to take down the USA Patriot Act. And it was just a remarkable story. It went on for a long time. Um, And... At one point, it was going to court, and they were in a, uh, the, it was going to a Connecticut court, this case of their suit against the USA Patriot Act. And as they were getting ready to go to court, their lawyers called them and said, no, you cannot enter the courtroom. You will be in a courtroom two hours away watching by closed-circuit television. They said, what do you, this is our case. They said, no, you're considered sort of equivalent of enemies of the state, you won't be allowed in the courtroom. So these four librarians were put in, brought to a courtroom. They were actually put into a closet by the guard because that's where the closed-circuit TV was. The guard is saying, I've never locked librarians in a closet before. (laughs) And that's how they viewed the court proceedings, over the shoulder of the judge, looking out like we're looking out on you right now. But that's what inspired them, because they saw in the audience, in the courtroom, on those court pews, hundreds of librarians from all over the country. They didn't know who these John Doe librarians were, but they knew librarians were in trouble, and they were there to stand up for them. And this case went on. And amazingly, the government kept making mistakes, and they forgot to redact Peter Chase's name in one of the court documents. So suddenly the New York Times calling Chase at home, Reuters was calling, and his kid in high school answers the phone, and you know they ask to speak to Peter Chase, and it's something about the FBI, and it's about a court case, and the kid knows nothing about it. And he goes out to his father, who's just coming in from work. He says, Dad, I mean, 
are you involved? I mean, there's like reporters on the phone, something to do with the court case and the police and the FBI. And he said, Dad, are you involved with drugs? (laughs) (laughs) A little role reversal here. (laughs) Well, ultimately, these librarians, while they didn't stop the USA Patriot Act and they weren't able to engage in the debates that would have brought it down, they did successfully have the gag order lifted after the USA Patriot Act was voted on, if you have any question about why it was they were gagged. They were some of the most vocal critics even before this gag order. But they stood up, and they are a model for so many people. They're one of the few people in this country who now can talk about having been served with a NSL, with a National Security Letter. Things actually, though many thought when President Obama would come into office, things would lift on uh, these issues of privacy. They're getting tighter and tighter. Um, And just as you enjoy Facebook and your Google searches, the more you're able to gather information, they're able to gather information on you. And you have to be very, very aware of this in everything you do. I mean... It's important that we live somewhat transparent lives, but I think that across the political spectrum, this is something that unites people. Issues of corporate control, issues of privacy, um, unite people, whether they're conservative, Republicans, Democrats, progressives, Greens. I think we have a lot more in common than we do having divide us, though you wouldn't know that if you watch the corporate media. Um, Sarah also instructing me today, I asked her, is there anything she would like to hear us talk about? Um, Did I already welcome the whole Blackberries group here? Could you just raise your hands? This is the next generation. And I'm very honored that they would all spend their Friday night with us. But Sarah said, why don't you talk about, well, Frederick Douglass, because they're studying it in eighth grade. And I thought I would start by talking about election night 2008 as we move into the midterm elections and maybe um, take it from there and lead into this very interesting Maryland hero, national hero, I would say, uh, Frederick Douglass. You remember November 4th, 2008. I think the whole world will remember. The whole world heaved a sigh of relief on that day. I think if you were in outer space, you'd hear the gasp, the sigh. Um, It was historic. There's no question about it, no matter your political perspective. You know, the first African-American president in a land with a legacy of slavery. Truly remarkable. And the fact that he's a community organizer, or was one, a community organizer becomes the commander-in-chief. Imagine parents all over this country are now saying to their kids, ooh, maybe you can be a community organizer too. (laughs) But what does it mean when the community organizer-in-chief becomes the commander-in-chief? Well, it means people have to find leaders in their own communities because movements are what matter. People repeatedly ask me as I travel, what do you think of President Obama? It is not just about one person. It is about movements. And I think after November 4th, 2008, people stepped back 
I mean, they had done their job, and now they felt it's up to him, which I do think is precisely the wrong approach if you want something done. There's no question that for years people felt that they were hitting their heads against a brick wall. And that wall became a door. And the door, though, was just open a crack. And the question is, would it be kicked open or slammed shut? And that's not up to him. That's up to you. Because, you know, when President Obama sits in the Oval Office and those who have access to power who are used to walking the West Wing of the White House who are used to having the president's ear, those with the power and the money, when they whisper something in his ear, if he can't point out the window and say, if I do that, they will storm the Bastille, and there's no one out there, he's in big trouble. And then, what about the times you just completely disagree with his approach? What are you going to do? He, more than anyone, knows what Frederick Douglass said. Power concedes nothing without a demand. Who's been making demands? Those on the right. Who's been sitting back and saying, we elected him, now he'll do his job? No, that's not how it works. He responds to movements, as all presidents do. So, Right after Election Day, but before he was inaugurated, Michelle and Barack Obama went to the White House. Remember, they were invited by the Bushes. And I was invited on CNN that afternoon to comment on this moment. So I'm sitting in the CNN studios, and there's a few guests on from around the country, so they're sort of chattering through the various insert studios. And I'm looking at the video, and the Obamas are actually walking into the White House. And they asked me some other questions. I said, well, wait a second. No. We have to take pause. Barack Hussein Obama, Michelle LaVon Robinson Obama. You know, she is the granddaughter of... Um, her grandfather, I think both grandfathers came from South Carolina, at least one. They are the descendants of slaves. So Michelle LaVon Robinson Obama and her daughters, Malia and Sasha, their daughters, are the descendants of slaves. And they, the Obamas, are walking into the White House, the most famous house on earth, which was built by slaves. This is an historic moment. So let's just take a minute. You can't take a minute on corporate TV. You only get an eight-second soundbite. But let's take two seconds, okay, and just breathe. Can Barack Obama redeem the White House? Well, again, I don't think it's just up to him. It's up to everyone. And I thought about a house not so far from the White House, a couple of hours away in St. Michael's, Maryland. Um, it's... The property is known as Mount Misery. Frederick Douglass was born on the eastern shore of Maryland, and he was enslaved as a youth and a teenager. And it might not surprise you to know he was a troublesome slave. And a man called a slave breaker named Covey was handed Frederick Douglass to break. And he beat him, he tortured him, but Frederick Douglass fought back, and he ultimately freed himself. I won't say he was freed. He headed north. He was the editor of the North Star newspaper. 
and he changed the world. He was the greatest abolitionist of all time. There's a place I go in the um, in Manhattan, a coffee shop in an old brick building, and has a plaque outside, and it said, this is the old printing press of David Ruggles, who was born a free black man in Connecticut. And it's the place where Frederick Douglass took refuge when he came north. And I thought about this. Douglass, the North Star newspaper. David Ruggles had a printing press. These men saw the media as their means of liberation because information is power. And so that property in St. Michael's, Mount Misery, that was owned by Covey, where he tortured slaves, men, women, kids who were enslaved, like Frederick Douglass, that property today is owned by Donald Rumsfeld. That's right. The former Secretary of Defense bought it in 2003 as his vacation home to be near his close friend, Vice President Dick Cheney. Now, I was very surprised when I read about this, and I started to research it online. Could this possibly be true? Mount Misery is owned by Donald Rumsfeld. Um, and, but it did look like it, according to all the information. And by the way, especially for young people, you're online all the time. Um, we have to protect the Internet. We have to protect network neutrality. We have to make sure it remains open and free for everyone, that you don't have to pay for it, that corporations can't take it over. We can't let the cable companies and the t telecommunications companies write the legislation that would privatize the Internet. It's the way we can communicate with people around the world. It's uh, grassroots globalization is the answer to corporate globalization. Um, and we just can't let them take it away from us. But the Internet can also be a global rumor mill, and so you have to double-check and triple-check and quadruple-check everything you read there. So being a journalist, I thought I have to go beyond the Internet. I actually have to go there and see if this is true. So my colleague Dennis Moynihan and I, we drove to St. Michael's, Maryland, and you know, we get there, and I realize I have no idea. This was in 2003, four. I have no idea where the Secretary of Defense lives. How am I going to find out? And then I see this organic coffee shop ahead of us, and I think, oh, they'll tell the truth. <laughs> you, you can see a theme in my life. So we go into the coffee shop, and they said, what would you like? And I said, I'd like to know where um, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld lives. And they said, oh, oh, just go out back. You drive down the road. Don't go down Mount Pleasant Road, they said. You make a right and another right, and that's Mount Misery Road. And you go to the end of the road, and you'll find his house. <laughs> oh, okay. So we got in the car. We drove out back. We didn't go down Mount Pleasant Road. And then we made a right and another right. It seemed we couldn't go right enough. Um, and... <laughs> And we got to the end of the road, and there was the Secret Service, you know, the black-tinted windows of the SUV, and we knew we had arrived. So we got out. I quickly took my video camera, and I started zooming in as they were zooming out. And I'm thinking, does Donald Rumsfeld know the significance of this property of Mount Misery? Does he know what it is? But as I'm zooming in, I see a stake in the ground right next to the driveway that says Mount Misery. 
And so we headed to an old black church nearby. It was Sunday morning on an old dusty road, and we went inside, and the folks were just about to have um, uh, mass. They were having a kind of um, a Sunday school. And they were sitting in the sanctuary, and I went up to one of the women, and I said, excuse me, I was just wondering... Um, I was wondering, I mean, this is just amazingly historic place. I mean, this is where Frederick Douglass was held, where he was tortured, where he was beaten at Mount Misery, and now Mount Misery is owned by the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, who is actually known for torture. And I was wondering, what do you think of all this? And she said, I can't comment right now. We're in church. (laughs) From Mount Misery to Mount Hope, um, I was speaking in Geneva, New York, a little while after I visited St. Michael's, Maryland. And a young woman came up to me after the talk, and she said, I would like to take you to Mount Hope Cemetery. She said, because that's where Frederick Douglass is buried, is in Rochester, New York. And I said, oh, my gosh, well, I am leaving in the morning to fly to Denver. It was in the middle of a snowstorm, a blinding snowstorm. I said, if you would meet me at 5 in the morning in front of the cemetery, she said, I'll be there. So we drove up at 5 in the morning, and there she was, covered in snow under her parka. And um, uh, we got out, and she walked me to this remarkable tombstone that said Frederick Douglass, and we brushed the snow off it. And then she said, would you come with me to one other grave? And I said, I really, I have to go. She said, please, well, okay. So we started walking, then running and slipping and sliding across this vast cemetery. And we come upon another tombstone, a much smaller one. And it's the tombstone of Susan B. Anthony, who's buried next to her sister. Susan B. Anthony, the great suffragist, women's rights activist, and Frederick Douglass, they were not just allies, they were friends. Um, You know, Frederick Douglass was a great feminist. In fact, he was the one who seconded Elizabeth Cady Stanton at the Seneca Falls Women's Convention in 1848 when she called for a resolution for women having the right to vote. And this was way before. I mean, this is when many women were saying, no, we shouldn't go that far. And there was Frederick Douglass raising his hand and saying, women should be our equal as a man. And Susan B. Anthony was an abolitionist like Frederick Douglass. And when I told the story at Wesleyan College, a woman came up to me and she said, and did you go to Susan B. Anthony's house and see the statue near there? Which is not like a statue of a general. It's actually a statue of Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass having tea together. (laughs) The abolition movement, the women's rights movement, these are the movements that have made this country great and will continue to in their reincarnations, like the civil rights movement. I think it's so interesting recently that President Obama has seemed to get some of his fire back as he goes back on the road and speaks, and I was invited on CNN again, and they said, what do you think of him talking about the abolition movement and the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement? It was two weeks ago. And I said something that I don't think had been said on CNN before. It was the Friday night of Saturday where more than 100,000 people gathered in Washington, the One Nation um, Working Together movement. You know, when 40 
Tea Party activists get together, you have 100 journalists there, <laughs> right? And that's very important. They're amplifying the voices. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be covered. Absolutely, all movements should be covered. But you have over 100,000 people, and you're lucky. Maybe the Baltimore Sun did it in the Washington Post, maybe as a local story. But actually, all over the country, this got not very much coverage at all. I expect C-SPAN perhaps had it. But the kind of coverage that's proportionate to the number of people who come out, these movements matter, and President Obama knows that. I think he started talking about these movements before because he was concerned. Because you have him saying to progressive movements around the country, buck up. And you have Vice President Biden saying, stop whining. Who exactly are they turning to for votes? They're appealing to the right who won't vote for them, who's running as far as they can from then. And then you've got this remarkable base. I think the majority of people in this country, by the way, are opposed to war. I mean, a big untold story in the military is a big untold story in the military is the level of resistance within the military itself. The thousands of young men and women who have refused to go or come back and refuse to be deployed. It's the Pentagon's numbers, but they don't like to talk about it because it could inspire others. I think the majority of people in this country are opposed to war, opposed to torture, do believe that people should have a basic access to health care, are deeply concerned. <laughs> and if those in power would simply not be afraid to say these things, they would appeal to a great diversity of people as they did two years ago. These are the movements, and as President Obama sees that he is losing his base, he's coming back to some of that same language. I think he was addressing the people who were gathering in Washington the next day. What CNN were scratching their head, why is he using this language? He's using this language because now people are getting on their feet, and they're saying to the president and the vice president, buck up yourselves. <laughs> So, anyway, that very wintry, snow-blown morning, I race off to the airport, and I miss my plane. So I call up Dennis, and I say, Dennis, you've got to get me on the next plane to Dennis. I have this talk to Denver. I've got this talk to give. And he pulls up the blueprints of the Rochester airport, and he says, okay, just tell me quickly, are you in the Susan B. Anthony wing, or are you in the Frederick Douglass terminal? <laughs> I said, no, please, this is not a joke. I am in a commercial airport, and I need to get on it. He said, no, I'm not kidding. And so I look over. I'm standing in the middle of the airport. Over there, engraved in the floor, in the tile, it says Frederick Douglass. And over here, the other wing says Susan B. Anthony. You know, every once in a while, you have to stop and smell the coffee. So um, I got on the flight, and I made it to Denver. But these are the lessons we can learn. And we need a media that goes back in the past to talk about the greatness of people organizing in history so that we can understand uh, where we are and where we have to go. And especially for young people to know you don't have to invent it all yourselves. People have done it. 
Another story that's so important, you know, uh, before President Obama was elected, when he was having um, those backyard parties all over, the house parties, he was in New Jersey, and at the end of one of his the evenings, he was leaving, and a guy raises his hand to ask a question. He says, what about the Middle East? And, pres- and then Senator, presidential candidate Obama, told a story. And he told the story of the greatest organizer of the 20th century, A. Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph was the organizer of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, extremely powerful union, very important jobs. It was the story of the black conductors on the Pullman cars in the 10s and the 20s and the 30s. Um, terribly exploited, you know, George Pullman, the Pullman cars. In fact, all of them were named George. No, were called George. Of course they weren't named George by their mothers and their fathers. They were called George by the people who went on the trains. And that should give you an indication of why they needed to organize. So A. Philip Randolph was brought in to organize them. He also was the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, where President, where uh, Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. So when, President, when Obama was asked what we should do about the Middle East, he told the story of A. Philip Randolph that Eleanor Roosevelt brought Randolph to meet with FDR. And Randolph held forth and talked about the condition of working people in this country to the president at the time, FDR, talked about the condition of black people in this country to the president, FDR. And FDR said, I don't disagree with anything you have said, but you have to make me do it, he said. And that's the story that Obama told when asked about what should happen in the Middle East. He said, you'll have to make me do it. Make me do it. So he's put out the challenge. And that's how politics works. It doesn't have to be vitriolic. doesn't have to be vicious. But if you want something done, you got to, well, take heed. Hear what Frederick Douglass said. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Now, when I talked about the military, I noticed people clapped very loudly when I was talking about the level of resistance within the military. And something is now breaking as we sit here. Tonight and tomorrow, major news conference will happen in London. Tonight, New York Times and other publications are going to post. And if you listen to or watched, how many of you listen to Democracy Now! on WEAA? Wonderful. Um, And by the way, a big shout-out to our colleagues in Washington, D.C., WPFW. Because... We are all in this together, and public access, Baltimore Public Access TV that broadcasts Democracy Now! and Free Speech TV and Link TV. We're going to be doing the night of the elections. We're all together going to be um, broadcasting on Free Speech TV from 8 until 2 in the morning, reporting on the midterm elections. But what's happening tonight is that WikiLeaks, this whistleblower website, is going to release 400,000 military documents, military logs of the war in Iraq. 400,000, the largest leak in the history of the United States. And 
They're not doing this for sensational purposes. They're doing it to end war. And today on Democracy Now!, we had Dan Ellsberg on. Dan Ellsberg, who 40 years ago released the Pentagon Papers in 1971. He was a top-level Pentagon analyst, worked for the RAND Corporation, was at the Pentagon. He was looking at the people protesting outside, protesting the war, protesting Richard Nixon, protesting Lyndon Johnson before that. And he thought, what am I doing in here? As the bodies piled up on all sides, Laotians, Vietnamese, Cambodians, the U.S. soldiers, 55,000 of them died. How many millions of Vietnamese died? Everyone together. And he's a Pentagon analyst, top-level security clearance, and he knows that behind him in his safe, he has one of the few copies of the 7,000-page history, secret history of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. He was thinking, what can I do from the position I sit in? And he decided to open the safe, take out the report. He said, I didn't have the internet that you do today. All he had was a Xerox machine. And he started to Xerox the papers, 7,000 pages. His kids were little then, and he brought them to sit with him. They sat him on the Xerox machine as he made these copies, because he feared it would be the last time he would see them, because he knew he could be charged with treason and that he could be put in prison for the rest of his life. But he thought he was responding to a higher patriotic call, which was to stop the killing and the war. And again, he thought information is power, if people only know. Now, what people don't often realize is this history that he had released, that he got to the New York Times and to the Washington Post, it was a history that ended a few years before he was doing the Xeroxing. He wasn't going to expose any sources, get any people killed. He was going to try to stop the killing. And for 40 years, now especially in these last years, He has called for people high up in the military or intelligence or people who have access to this information to do what he did. He doesn't rest on his laurels. Whenever I'm moderating an event where Dan Ellsberg is, I say, tell the story of what you did. It was remarkable. He went underground with his wife, Patricia. They had just gotten married, and she's thinking, my God, it's their first year of marriage. She may lose her husband. He may go into prison for the rest of his life. Um, he gave one copy of the Pentagon Papers to Howard and Rosin, because the great historian who wrote People's History of the United States, uh, because he was afraid um, his would be taken. And, uh, it took the New York Times many, many months to publish. He started to think maybe they're not going to publish it. He wanted someone to have it. And they'd gone out to dinner and to a movie with the Zins in Boston. He was underground now. And they came back and turned on the television, and they saw their house being raided. Um, they knew they were in big trouble, and he was charged with treason. And he ultimately, though, the charges were dropped against him, not before his psychiatrist's office was broken into um, by the Nixon Dirty Tricks uh, team, and they were trying to destroy him, get anything on him, because they were desperate for people in this country not to know what was happening in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. That's 40 years ago. So I always say, Dan, when I'm on a panel with Dan, tell the story. He says, no, I want to talk about now. I want to talk about who the new people are who are going to get information out because we're in a war that is absolutely, he feels, criminal and must stop. So, and yet, 
I think it's important that people hear the stories, not just know the whistleblower. What does that one word mean? To know, understand his bravery. And he's been calling for this. And now WikiLeaks has responded and is doing this to the nth degree. He released 7,000 pages. They're releasing 400,000 documents. Now what is interesting is you might know that uh, recently they released, they were releasing something like 91,000 documents on the war in Afghanistan, actually only 75,000 of them. 15,000 they held back. They wanted the Pentagon to review them. And continually, um, Admiral Mike Mullen, the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, they went on TV and they said he is threatening WikiLeaks, Julian Assange is threatening national security. They have blood on their hands. They are endangering sources on the ground. And that, I think people respond to that. You can't name names. What are you going to do? You're going to get people killed. Interestingly, though, the Associated Press got a memo, an internal Pentagon memo, that acknowledged they had exposed no sources. But they had to figure out a way to shield themselves from what he has released. And this is what WikiLeaks has released. And it's extremely serious. Um, and this is just to give you context, because you'll go home tonight, you'll wake up in the morning, and you're, you're going to start to read about these documents. 400,000 documents they are releasing. Now, a little while ago, um, we got WikiLeaks release, posted a videotape from 2007, uh, a U.S. military video that showed the indiscriminate targeting and killing of civilians in Baghdad. The video was made July 12, 2007, by a U.S. military Apache helicopter gunship. Includes audio of military radio transmission. So this is not a person on the ground, a civilian who they can say doctorate. This is right from the Apache warship. You know, they film everything. And that's what these documents are going to be about. These are not um, from peace activists noting what happens on the ground. These 400,000 documents are from within the military. That's why it's so threatening to the Pentagon, because it's their own version of events. And two Reuters employees, back to July 12, 2007, a journalist and his driver were killed in the attack that the video shows from the Apache helicopter, along with at least eight other people. Two children were injured. The radio transmissions show not only the utter callousness of the soldiers laughing and swearing as they kill, but also the strict procedure they follow. You know, they're not a rogue group like the kill team, where there's now being hearings hardly covered now up at um, Fort Lewis in Washington, the kill team of a group of soldiers who were working just recently in Afghanistan collecting ears for trophies. Very, very frightening. But this is a group who every time they did something, the soldiers in the Apache helicopter, they cleared it. They would say, do we have orders to open fire? They, did, they were not rogue. They didn't do it on their own. They're laughing and swearing they're following strict procedure, ensuring all their attacks are clearly authorized by their chain of command. The leaked video is a grim depiction of how routine the killing of civilians has become, a stark reminder of how necessary journalism is and how dangerous its practice has become. After photographer Namir Noor Eldin, who is 22 years old, and his driver, Saeed Shema, who is 40 and the father of four, were killed Reuters, who they worked for, the news agency, demanded a full investigation. 
Nur al-Din, despite his youth, had been described by colleagues as one of the preeminent war photographers in Iraq. The video shows a group of men in an open square in Baghdad, leading the two Reuters employees to a building nearby. How often this happens when reporters go out, community comes out, and they want to show them different things. Nur al-Din and Shema are shown. They're carrying cameras. A U.S. soldier in the helicopter says, okay, we got a target 15 coming at you. It's a guy with a weapon. There's much back and forth between two helicopters and ground troops and armored vehicles nearby. Have five to six individuals with AK-47s request permission to engage, they say. Roger that. We have no personnel east of our position. You're free to engage. Over. The helicopter circles around with the crosshairs squarely in the center of the group of about eight men. WikiLeaks and its partner for the story, the Icelandic National Broadcasting Service, adds subtitles to the video as well as arrows that indicate the Reuters employees on the ground below. There's sustained automatic weapon fire. That's from the Apache helicopter. Most of the men are killed instantly. Nur al-Din, the 22-year-old preeminent photographer, runs away. The crosshairs follow him, shooting nonstop until he falls dead. The radio transmission continues, all right, ha, 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 I hit him. Then we got one guy crawling around down there. That was Saeed Shema, the father of four. Seriously wounded, dragging himself away from the other bodies. A voice in the helicopter seeking a rationale to shoot says, come on, buddy, all you got to do is pick up a weapon. If we see a weapon, we're going to engage, as he drags himself away. A van pulls up as Shema is trying to drag himself away. Several men, clearly unarmed, come out and lift Shema ostensibly to carry him to medical care. The soldiers and the Apache sought and received permission to, quote, engage the van. They opened fire, tearing apart the front of the van, killing the men. The weapon used was a 30-millimeter machine gun used to pierce armor. With everyone in sight apparently dead, U.S. armored vehicles move in. When a vehicle drives over Norrell Dean's corpse and observing the helicopters laughing, I think they just drove over a body. The troops discovered two children in the van who'd miraculously survived. One voice on the military radio requests permission to evacuate them to a U.S. military hospital. Another voice commands them to hand over the wounded children to Iraqi police for delivery to a local clinic, assuring delayed, less adequate treatment. The U.S. military inquiry into the killings clear the soldiers of any wrongdoing. Reuters' freedom of information requests for the video are denied. Despite the Pentagon's whitewash, the attack was brutal, might have involved a war crime since those removing the wounded are protected by the Geneva Convention. WikiLeaks says it obtained the video from a member of military, from a number of military whistleblowers. Um, WikiLeaks has broken a number of stories, received a number of awards, and now they're doing the biggest leak of all. But this shows the power of releasing this information. Reuters tried to get it under Freedom of Information Act. They couldn't. And so WikiLeaks has procured it. Um, the words of legendary journalist I.F. Stone still hold true. You know, he was teaching young students, and he said, if you're going to remember two words, remember governments lie. And this is very important. Because of that, we need courageous journalists and media workers like Namir Nour al-Din, like Saeed Shema. We need whistleblowers and news organizations that will carefully protect whistleblowers' identities while their exposés um, uh, 
open up information to the public so we can decide how we want to be in the world. It's too late for many. Many U.S. soldiers who've been killed or been mortally wounded, it's too late for many Iraqis and Afghans. Unfortunately, we don't know the numbers. But it's not too late to turn around these wars. It's not too late to fulfill a dream that so many millions of people were galvanized by in 2008 across the political spectrum that we don't have to represent war to the rest of the world, that war is not the answer to conflict in the 21st century. Democracy Now! We're going to now open the microphone right over here for some questions. We only have a short period of time, but we'll let you know when things start to wind down. So if you have a question or a comment, preferably the question that you get to fairly quickly, um, if you start making your way to the microphone, Mark is going to stay here at the table and moderate, and Amy's going to answer your questions. Where are you going? I'm going to the microphone to control thing. (laughs) (laughs) And and if you would, just say who you are. I mean, I'll give you a whole name and... Mike is your number, but go ahead, sir. Hello, Amy. Hi. My name is Maxwell. Hi, Uh, Max. uh, If you recall, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you were in an interview with, I think, a guy by the name of David Cornwall from London or Europe. David Cornwall. Cornwall, yes. yes. A.K.A. John le Carré, the great spy novelist. Yes. Um, uh, uh, He began to have a discussion about um, money laundering. Yes. And uh, immediately the uh, airwave was uh, blacked out. I don't know if you were aware of that. And uh, from that point until you went off the air, uh, we got no information. Was there anything that I should have heard (laughs) that I missed? Well, you can always go to our website at democracynow.org and watch the whole interview. But I'm really glad you brought up that interview um, because... It was such a rare experience. How many of you are spy novel freaks? Okay, not freaks, but readers. (laughs) So John le Carré is such an interesting man, and I bet there are a lot of uh, John le Carré books here at the library, and I'd encourage you to read. I mean, now, uh, he wrote The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. He wrote Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He's been writing for like 50 years. He was a spy himself, MI5. MI6, the FBI and the CIA of Britain. In fact, we did the interview um, right in front of the spy agencies. Uh, It was very interesting, right across from the River Thames from them. He's turning 80 now. He's written many books for the last 50 years. He went from being a spy to being a spy novelist. And you might know him, if you don't know those books, by The Constant Gardener. You know that amazing, it was made into a film with, uh, how do you pronounce it, Rafe Fiennes and Rachel Weiss. Um, And that was a story of a pharmaceutical company experimenting on uh, Kenyans. And they did it in uh, Kibera, Kenya. 
Um, it w- it's an amazing film, and the book is remarkable. He wrote another book, which I'm reading now, called The Mission Song, about the Democratic Republic of Congo being exploited for its mineral resources, unfortunately, as he described it, cursed for their r- mineral resources. Instead of being able to you know, sustain themselves, they're just constantly at war, um, especially Western corporations exploiting them. Um, but here is a man who's been writing all these years, and I felt that no one, while they ask him a political question in an interview here and there, not a full political interview about his beliefs, because people would be very surprised. He's world famous, especially outside the United States, but I think in the United States for you know many people who love spy books. Um, he said when we asked him about... Um, the war in Iraq, you know, he was outside with the million people in Britain protesting Tony Blair. And, you know, Tony Blair has just written a memoir, maybe it's also here. And everywhere Tony Blair goes, he's met by mass protests, so much so that it's canceled many book events. People have thrown eggs at him, they've thrown shoes at him, because, you know, the Iraqi journalists, you know, the great sign of disrespect, throwing a shoe at President Bush. And, um, Tony Blair is much more popular in the United States than he is in his own country. Uh, they're very angry because the country was so massively opposed to war, and yet he took the country, he took Britain to war. And I asked him if he could ask Tony Blair a question, what would it be? And he said, have you ever kneeled at the side of a soldier and held him while he was dying? He said, that's the question I would ask Tony Blair. So go to our website, and you can see the whole interview. You can listen to it, you can watch it, you can read it. I look forward to that. You, your talk ranged the full spectrum from privacy all the way to transparency and leaks. This morning I was watching Tom Perriello debate his opponent in uh, the congressional race, where Tom Perriello made the passionate case for transparency in campaign finance, and his opponent, who's ahead in the polls, sadly, said, I don't want the government to know, you know, have lists of who's supporting who. So what are guidelines for when we really want privacy and when we Well, I don't think it's about the government. I mean, it's the people. You have to know where, right, I'm not saying, you're not saying that, but I think that's the answer to that. I mean, the money that is drowning um, democracy right now in the United States uh, in these elections, what is most frightening is the secret money, the millions of dollars that is being poured in by a very few people. I mean, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that is pouring money into these um, election ads. Uh, you heard you know, the, the latest reports from the Washington Post and the New York Times. It's actually, while they have something like 300,000 members, it's 45 members that are pouring in this money. The Carl Rove's groups, uh, very few billionaires like David and Charles Koch of Texas, these billionaires who have so little to do with Tea Party activists, yet they are pouring the money into the Tea Party movement. And so those who are most in need are saying, you know, keep the government out of our lives when they're desperately, many on Medicare or Medicaid, you know, it's the ironies here. Um, But we need to know where the money's coming from. So when you have, like, the Colorado senatorial candidate who is ahead now in the polls, uh, Ken Buck, um, 
saying that, and this is repeated by Tea Party favorites all over the country, that humans have nothing to do with global warming. And then you hear that these campaigns are getting millions, especially in ads from corporations like Chevron. Um, you know, the oil companies that have everything to gain by denying that we have anything to do with global warming. We have to know where the money's coming from. Can I follow up with that? Well, so then what do you think we do, our media and everyone else, to counter that? Because the election could turn out, could turn on that. I mean, this election could turn on the corporate money that is fueling people's minds to change, the, to, to confuse them about what's going on. And this is a very critical point we're at, within, I think, at the moment. Well, I also think we have to demand of the corporate media to open up the discussion about what the positions are in people's races. I mean, how often you turn on the television and you see uh, this person's up 0.3%, this person's back down 0.2%, now this right. person has risen about 1%. And that when, I mean, it's all the coverage of the horse race. Where are the issues and the actual stands that people are right. taking? Right. We have to demand that there be discussion. When was the last time you heard discussion of war? You know, uh, what did a study just show? More people are now dying in Pakistan from the war than Afghanistan. I mean, this is amazing. Most people would be shocked to hear that Pakistan, we're not waging a war in Pakistan. Oh, yeah? Um, but what about war? When a country engages in war, there's no more serious issue. And what was, yet, what, when was the last time you heard that raised? You know, and when you watch the Sunday morning talk shows on the networks and NBC and ABC and CBS, um, is it any surprise that after a few minutes, you, you know, it flips to a commercial, it says this discussion brought to you by Boeing, by Lockheed Martin, by McDonnell Douglas. That's why we have to support WEAA, because it's not brought to you by weapons manufacturers. And by the way, you all, I just want to, let people know you see the flyer underneath that dotted line, pledge support today on WEAA. Your donation goes to keep public media alive. This is a free event, but your donations to WEAA are welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Anthony, and thanks, Mark, and thanks, Norvell, who's out there. And thank you so much, Amy, for coming to Baltimore and for keeping us cognizant of the fact that we as grown folks are not where it's at. It's these young people who will come after us and keep up the work that we really need to be focusing on. You sound like a teacher. I am a teacher. She is a teacher. <laughs> I teach 11th grade English in East Baltimore. And the Baltimore Teachers Union, thank you, thank you. The Baltimore Teachers Union is, has just proposed to us a contract, which is a big deal. It's the first in the nation to really realign with the race to the top, as opposed to no child's behind left or whatever that one was. Um, and they're really trying to take our power. Our union isn't listening. Um, and I was wondering, I know, I know in my heart of hearts that the Obamas, as organizers, want to work with us. And I keep thinking we're drafting all these letters to our union president, to the Sun paper, and that's great and what needs to happen. 
What do we do? To, we're supposed to be guinea pigs on a national level. They're trying to roll this kind of contract out nationwide. Well, you know, today on Democracy Now!, um, I talked with Juan, Juan Gonzalez, co-host on Democracy Now!, wonderful journalist <laughs> reporter, <clears throat> about the column he wrote today in the New York Daily News, and it was about teachers and this new push to reveal the test scores of kids <coughs> of the uh, to sh- associate the test scores of kids in a class with their teacher. And then you can fire teachers if the kids have bad test scores in the class. <coughs> Which they means this that the low-performing schools always get new teachers and stay right. failing. That's very important. And they did this in Los Angeles, and a teacher within days um, committed suicide. And now they're trying to do it in New York, and the court has stopped it. And they're trying to do it all over the country. But what is it going to do? It's going to encourage teachers not to take on students who are difficult, perhaps who are struggling. Because, I mean, if you could be fired because you have kids in your class that are doing poorly, are you going to want these kids in your class? I'll open this a preschool eventually. I obviously think you probably uh, would defy all of the, these descriptions, but it is a trend in this country that is very seriously problematic. And the movie, Waiting for Superman, um, is you know, extremely powerful in its propaganda. Mm-hmm. When I left, I mean, in the way it was shaped, it is gen- ingeniously put together. When I walked out of that movie, I thought there's a new T word here. I mean, it was terrorist before. I think teachers are the new terrorist, that they are destroying America. Teachers, I was just astounded. The feeling you have at the end of it is these teachers are the problem. And we have to take care of, not really take care of, but in another sense, deal with these teachers. Uh, Not talking about poverty and communities, the lack of support for public education, but pulling the money away from the public schools and giving them, well, not, the voucher movement failed, so this is a new kind of voucher movement in the charter school movement. And um, I think we have to be very careful. And I'm sure here in Baltimore, as you're talking, there is a real movement to protect. We need a movement to protect, but what truly do we protect do? public what do education. I do? What does our small but growing movement do concretely to well, grow? Well, what are the teachers forward? doing? And well, it's not teachers, just the teachers. teachers. voted against the con- They voted it down. We voted it down, and, and we've had a meeting to where we've come up with what we want our contract to look like and a good um, stopgap measure for the next year where we get a reasonable living wage adjustment, um, I'm sorry, cost of living adjustment, and have some time to think about these very major differences between the proposed contract and the current contract. But how do we get our voices heard? How do we make sure that the president of the union doesn't just continue to represent us all the way well, to the I ballot say, box? Ask, how many people in this room have kids in school? In or our teachers. Uh-huh. I have children. I, that, that's, the, that's part of the answer is right here. It's parents and teachers and students together telling the system you're not going to do this to our schools and our students. And That's you're not alone. I mean, alone. it's linking up with people all over the country. The Chicago Teachers Union is becoming very powerful, and that's the key is learning from each other. But it starts in your own community with the whole community being involved. 
Uh, hi, Amy. Hi. Uh, I'd like to thank you for serving all of us and for... But also for serving humanity. For, for... Ser- serving humanity as well. Oh. Um, I, I know that that pro- probably sounds huge to you, but... I think a lot of what you do is is uh, along. Well, the I line. started as a waitress, so serving people was pretty. <laughs> there, you, there you go. There you there you go. But now but it's my, just my, doing it on a bigger scale. My 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 kind of question is um, that uh, uh, yes, we see our media and, and corporations taking us in a direction counter to what we want to go to, and uh, we do have these examples of Frederick Douglass and 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 great people that have risen in our history to kind of help uh, change things. But the fact is, that's not the face that the rest of the world sees about America. That's not the face that they have of America. This, and what you said about, uh, you know, suffragettes and and the abolitionists. So, um, uh, my my specific uh, question to you is about um, the freedom of media in other countries. Yes, we're talking about the freedom of media in our country and freedom of the press and, and of speech and privacy, but in a lot of countries around the world, that exists even less. And yes, we should, that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for it here. We should. But how do we support movements for, for more openness and, and, and more liberty well, in other I countries? I think we can only be a model. And, okay. um, and I do think it's absolutely critical that you have that global perspective. I mean... Uh, filmmakers come in from all over the world to Democracy Now! Uh, in fact, we just got a request for Spanish television the day after the elections. They want to come in to uh, look at what Democracy Now! is doing. Uh, we broadcast all over the world. We uh, broadcast uh, every day in Austria, in South Africa, in Sweden, Jap- in Japan. And they translate it into Japanese. It's sort of like the New York Times, uh, the uh, Sahi Shimbam is like equivalent of the New York Times. They own a cable channel and they run Democracy Now! once a week. And it's very interesting. They translate it into Japanese. I think they call it the Other America. And um, then they have their leading journalists comment on it afterwards. And then these journalists come to New York and they talk to us and they see what we're doing. And they all ask this question well, how do we do this kind of work in our countries? And that is the idea. Uh, we need a global forum for people to be able to speak to each other to debate and discuss the most important issues of the day and not in sound bites. Uh, to have debates on issues like today we had a very interesting discussion. You know, don't ask, don't tell, which eventually is going to be gotten rid of. You know, President Obama on the one hand says we're going to get rid of it and then he appeals the decision to get rid of it. It's rather confusing. But what we did was we had a debate. You know, the debate in the corporate media, if there is a debate, is well, those who want to keep it and those who want to get rid of it. But what about in the anti-war movement, those who are opposed to discrimination and deeply feel no one should be discriminated against, but deeply feel that um, uh, for the issue for gay men and lesbians to be to get into the military and kill or be killed, that that is not exactly a progressive issue. It's very interesting debate. So we had Lieutenant Dan Choi on, who re-enlisted and uh, tried to re-enlist at Times Square recruiting station this week because the judge lifted the, said that, uh, struck it down. And we had a, um, a transgendered activist from San Francisco saying, why? Why are you doing this? Why do you see your form of liberation going and killing others? And it was very interesting. And I thought just the model of the discussion, 
It was not vitriolic. Dan Choi, the lieutenant who was thrown out of the military now, is trying to get in. He said, I hear what you're saying. I, I understand. And it was a very interesting discussion. We need a forum for honest yeah. debate right. that really opens up the parameters of the debate. And also a discussion for young people. Um, I just wanted to tell a quick story. Um, a story of two high school uh, girls, two high school young women who we had on Democracy Now! a few years ago. Um, it's a story of Mari Oi and Leia Anthony Labrasco. And I just saw Leia in uh, Long Island. Uh, we were doing an event together because she's now in college. Uh, and she's the head of her debate club. And it just was so interesting. They were two high school seniors. Their names were Leia Labrescu, she went to school in Long Island, and Mari Oy, she went to school in Wellesley, Massachusetts, to Wellesley Public High School. And they were chosen as presidential scholars. Um, they were two of 150 kids, three in every state, uh, who did well in school, and they were chosen, they choose them every year, to go to Washington at the end of their senior year. Um, and they meet with the president. Well, they did until this year that they went a few years ago. They, and so they were meeting with President Bush. And all of them got together in Washington. They were meeting each other for the first time. And the next day, they were going to go to the Rose Garden and meet President Bush. And Mari got to thinking, oh my God, people all over the world would like to meet with this president. And I have a responsibility. She stayed up all night with a number of the other of the presidential scholars. And they wrote a letter to President Bush. He came into the Rose Garden, and she had the letter. It was handwritten. And Leia was very scared that it would be confiscated from Mari. So she handwrote it out again. It was signed by a third of the presidential scholars. So Leia wrote the whole thing out, and she shoved it up her sleeve. Beware of smart kids with something up their sleeve. <laughs> so um, the president comes out, and he welcomes the kids, and he says, the decisions you make today will affect the way the rest of your life turns out. And so Mari stepped forward, and she said, well, we've decided to give you this letter, Mr. President. And she hands it to him. You know, this is just adorable, these kids, and they're giving the president a letter. So he smiles, and he takes it, and he's putting it in his pocket. And he says, did you want me to read it? She said, well, that would be your decision. <laughs> and so he said, okay. So he took it out, and he's smiling, and he's reading the letter, and he looks up, and he says, we do not torture. And he looks down and he looks up again and he says, we do not torture. And she says, well then, Mr. President, would you unsign the signing order that you signed um, when you signed the McCain anti-torture bill? Now, what, he was talk what she was talking about was um, President Bush signed more signing statements than all presidents in the history of the United States combined, over 1,100 of them. I'm sure it was much more than that. What that is is when the president signs a bill that Congress passes, they can sometimes quietly sign what's called a signing statement that basically says they don't have to abide by this bill. So the bill gets lots of fanfare, the McCain anti-torture bill. Yes, it was John McCain in Arizona. He had been tortured himself in Vietnam. So President Bush, you know, they're surrounded by all the people when they sign the bill. They don't have the fanfare when they quietly sign a signing statement that says they don't always have to abide by it. So she said, well, then, Mr. President, will you unsign the signing statement you signed when you signed the McCain anti-torture <laughs> bill? And then the kid from Montana raised his hand and said, President Bush, we don't have to represent torture to the rest of the world. So this was something the... High school students 
high school students teaching the president a, le- a lesson. Now, their parents weren't allowed there then, so Mari called her mom as soon as she did this. Her mother didn't know she was doing this. Her mother was over at the Holocaust Museum visiting because they had just come from Massachusetts, and she was coming out of the last room, and she had tears in her eyes as Mari told her what she did. Uh, but she didn't look much different from most people who come out of the museum crying, right? But she w- it was particularly poignant because Mari's mother had won, had been honored as a presidential scholar 40 years before. And she had met with Lyndon Johnson, and she had wanted to tell him to stop the war in mm-hmm. Vietnam, but her favorite teacher told her, this isn't the time or place. You don't ask, tell the president this. And so she kept quiet. And her daughter broke her own silence as well. And the reason Mari did this is not only for her mom, but for her grandparents, because they were Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II. Over 100,000 Japanese Americans interned as you know, domestic enemies when, uh, after Pearl Harbor, a terrible chapter in our history. Since then, the US government has apologized for what happened. So Mari knew well what it meant to target people um, in secretive camps, and um, she was really standing up for everyone when she spoke. Now, Leah Anthony Labrescu, she had this letter that she had up her sleeve and wasn't confiscated. Mari had given it to the president, so she decided to give it to the press. And that's how the story got out. But it really is not very surprising because her parents named her Leah Anthony Labrescu. Anthony for Susan B. Anthony. So kids have a lot to teach all of us. He said, we do not torture. I think he's still saying it to this day. I also think, by the way, I have a comment, that I understand that Donald Rumsfeld has just got a Twitter account, and you know he's sort of been keeping a very low profile recently, but he's just written a book. And I think it's an opportunity for people here when he comes through, he might well come from his vacation home in St. Michael's to maybe this library or to other events, to ask him questions like Leah and... Uh, Mari asked of the president. Maybe we can get him on. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have to stop the questioning now. Amy's going to be out signing books, but unfortunately, oh, and come up even if you don't get, yeah, if you get a if book you don't or get a not. Book, come up and talk to her, ask her question. But we've got to stop. I'm sorry. I have to be the bad guy. <laughs> Amy, can I ask one question? I've been up there half an hour. I'm still up here one half an hour. If you don't mind me answering it in five seconds. I appreciate it. Okay. If you ask in five seconds. Praise God. Okay. Anyway, you do a very good job. My problem is that when we hear these forms, I wish y'all could take it to the recreation centers so all the children in the city of Baltimore could see. And then we would care. Oh, that's a great you idea. Want. You know, I get upset when I come down here and I don't see all the children in the inner city down here that really need the help. Now, when I listen to Mr. Mark's show and your show, Y'all ask good questions, and I'm, and I'm frightened to death of the new police commissioner because he's going to send all the little state attorney, he's going to send all the little children to jail because him and the commissioner hooking up, and I'm afraid. Good point you raise, and thank you for being here. Thank you, everyone, and thank you for supporting WEAA. You are not off the hook until you make that pledge. However big or small, it's not just a contribution, it's a just contribution. Keep public media alive. Thank you. Yeah.